You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we speak by telephone with Robin Bloor, a pupil of fourth-way teacher Rena Hands and author of an ongoing series of books on the writings of George Gurdjieff entitled To Fathom the Gist. The first two books in that series are Approaches to the Writings of G.I. Gurdjieff and The Arch Absurd. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on the show on this show today are from a CD called Music of the Prairie. Gurdjieff de Hartmann music performed by Rosemary Knott on piano. This piece is called Trinity. Listening to the Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week in the show, we converse by telephone with Robin Bloor. Mr. Bloor was born in Liverpool, England in the 1950s, studied mathematics at Nottingham University, and eventually became a computer consultant. Aside from his consultancy work, he has established a reputation as an international speaker on technology topics and as a writer by virtue of many magazine articles and technical publications. In early April, in April 1999, he published his first book, The Electronic Bazaar, which was about the dot-com revolution. Much to his surprise, it was a U.K. business bestseller and was published a year later in the United States, just as the dot-com boom turned to bust. It received several accolades, being referred to as a classic by Publishers Weekly in the U.S. He has been involved in the Gurdjieff work since 1982. In 1988, he met and became a pupil of Rena Hans, an accomplished Gurdjieff movements teacher and an inspirational group leader who died in 1994. 
In recent years, Mr. Boyer has turned his attention to writing about the Gurdjieff work and is widely regarded as an expert on Gurdjieff's writings. His series of books under the common title of To Fathom the Gist deal directly with the inner meaning of Gurdjieff's writings. They are gradually being rolled out over time. Robin is also an attendee and participant in the All and Everything International Conference, which takes place every year and focuses on Gurdjieff's writings. Robin immigrated to the U.S. in 2002, settling in Texas. In 2003, he was awarded an honorary Ph.D. in computer science by Wolverhampton University in the U.K. in recognition of services to the IT industry. From 2004 to 2007, he participated in writing three dummies books on technology, service-oriented architecture for dummies, service management for dummies, and cloud computing for dummies. Robin Bohr, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. It's great to be here, Stuart. Yeah, sorry about the uh, technical difficulties there at the beginning, but uh, uh, that should make for a good show, huh? Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll get started by uh, um, asking you if you have any updates for our audience who might have heard you on the previous show a little over two years ago. That was in March of 2017. Uh, about what you've been up to and anything you might want to share about about that that's uh maybe uh, um uh, the next volume of to follow to fathom the gist or uh, any other uh, relevant stuff well i can i can deal with the next volume um, the in terms of um i have a writing schedule is probably the thing to say or is it schedule in the united states i think it's a schedule um and I published in April of this year, I published um, Gurdjieff's Herald of the Coming Good. I um, added some notes and um, made it American English rather than British English, um, which was the only change I made to the text. So that's out and exists out there. Hmm. Um, this month I published a book on cryptocurrency, but really I don't think this is the forum to talk about that. Um, I'm writing um, the third volume of To Fathom the Gist, and, and really that was... Um, I started doing that last year sometime because I'd come to the conclusion that despite the fact that I'd published two books which told, um, described various ways in, in which one could um, get... Uh, more meaning out of Beelzebub's tales and Gurdjieff's other writings. I was surprised to discover that some of that's too hard for a lot of people. So I decided to just create, write a book which is to show how it's done, really, um, which takes the first chapter of Beelzebub's tales, actually the first half of the first chapter, uh, and just does just goes through the process that I go through when I'm trying to, um, I suppose, to fathom the gist. There will be a companion volume to that because it's it's already gone past 200 pages, so uh-huh. and there'll be a companion volume that does the second half of the first chapter. And um, it's actually quite revealing. In writing those particular, oh, putting my attention on those particular books, um, has been incredibly rewarding um, because the, because in some way or other you're trying to do something that's going to help other people out. You 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 get um, 
or it puts you in a frame of mind of trying to be meticulous and um, uh, things that I never knew when the first chapter started to emerge. So I was quite surprised at that. So uh, let me let me uh, just uh, pr- frame a little context for some listeners. The you know the material that you're writing about Gurdjieff's uh, w- uh, work. All and everything, Beelzebub's tales to his grandson is G.I. Gurdjieff's master work, which in some people describe as a 1,000-page uh, koan, and it requires a certain kind of attention and a certain kind of persistence to dig through what is a largely, would you say, allegorical, um, uh, a certainly challenging writing that's intended to force someone to read in a different way than we ordinarily read. And what when we talked with you a couple of years ago uh, about the To Fathom the Gist series, what you demonstrate in those books is a a way, a pathway. You don't you don't really reveal meaning so much as you reveal how to approach that work such that each individual can uh, discover for themselves uh, meaning that lays hidden in what, uh, on the surface, looks like a very impenetrable uh, piece of writing. So, so would you say? Yeah, that? I think, um, yeah, that's an, an accurate description of it. It's um, the the reality of the situation, as I understand it, <clears throat> or my experience of the situation, is that there is no way that you can transfer meaning to someone else. You, you can certainly transfer information, um, and the consequence of that in the work is normally that people end up um, becoming parrots rather than becoming people that understand anything. So the only way that you can productively present uh, is to um, give, you know, is to lay the tools out for somebody else and um, tell them how to use them. Um, what I'm doing with the third volume is doing a demonstration of those tools being used. And again, it doesn't put meaning to anyone's um, mind, um, but it does give them things to hang on to, and it does demonstrate levels of subtleties that they probably just didn't realize is actually in the tape. So I'm curious how you find that balance in the sense of to demonstrate, you have to show some level of meaning, or you have to give a little bit of meaning as a way of uh, indicating uh, how one might access and how one might actually make sense of of a, a let's say, um, uh, a half a page uh, sentence that is very difficult to follow. Although, um, you know, if you read it aloud, it actually becomes a lot more lyrical, but. How do you how do you find that balance between what is uh, appropriate or as we might say in the Gurdjieff work lawful to reveal by way of demonstration, but not so revealing that it uh, re- robs a reader of the opportunity of the effort that they might apply themselves? Well, I mean, in terms of it would be easier if if we if you had a copy of a book to look at because. Um, Basically, there are two acts that need to be done to um, words that you encounter in Beelzebub's tale. There are two things. One is research, right? Um, 
Uh, and that is if somebody, if the, if the words mention something, if they refer to a certain individual, find out who he was and why. Why is Gujif? Try to construct some reason why. Uh, and then the second thing is we just do a complete set of etymology for every word that has potentially a different meaning than the reader might have. Mm. And etymology is etymology. The, the reader can do it themselves. But if they realize that certain words really do need to be um, due to know the meaning of rather than the meaning you will assume they have if you just um, go past them. Um, then those are the two things that are being done. But there are, um, there is one uh, area where I've actually just told the reader, and and that is when Gigi starts writing about grammars. Uh, he's making a very specific point, and in actual fact, he's telling you how to read the book. Um, Gurdjieff uses the grammar of association. Um, so hold that thought for a moment, because it's necessary for me to review what a grammar actually is, um, in order for people to understand why it's such a strange notion. Um, sometime in the relatively early Middle Ages, everybody in Europe, in monasteries and in various fledgling academic organizations, wrote everything in Latin. And that had become, if you like, that had become the, um, uh, the standard for any kind of academic work was to write it in Latin. But in various parts of Europe, different versions of Latin grew up. No one was speaking Latin anymore. That had long gone. Um, so but they were writing Latin, and, and various um, different forms of Latin were being used. And uh, a number of um, people came together and decided that it needed to be standardized. And the standardization of Latin is where the word grammar comes from, or where modern grammars come from. The idea of standardizing a language and saying it has to be used in this way, this way, and this way. And if you, if you have been trained in Latin, then you realize that, you know, the word order in the Latin sentence actually is, is very um, uh, important in terms of, of getting the meaning of the sentence. So it's easy to understand that if certain rules were not being obeyed by everybody who wrote Latin, then one person's Latin would not necessarily be properly understood by another person. So that's how grammars came into existence. And later on, as um, uh, other languages, German, French, English, became more and more important, the various academics decided that they too should have grammars. So the, the idea of grammar is that the words should gather meaning in terms of their order, right? And, and there are lots of... You can buy, you know, um, uh, very thick books that tell you how English should be written, if you like. Gidgets use the, what he calls the grammar of association, and you can see this 
in um, any of the long paragraphs will normally serve as a useful thing to do, a uh, useful way of um, uh, uh, parsing what he's saying. What he does is he makes a point, right? He, he says something, and then he attaches, in one way or another, every association that he thinks is relevant to the thing that he's saying. So let me. And he puts the. Uh, uh, go ahead. I, I just wanted to stop for for a second there, and and to so so what you're saying is that that in these long pieces of writing, in these long par, you know paragraphs that could last for a page, and sentences that are half a page, the what ap- appears like almost like a stream of consciousness is a demonstration of a way of associating that is Gurdjieff's method of trying to retrain the mind. Is yeah, that... that's correct. He's trying to put association in. Uh, and he does this thing. He, it's, it's, it's actually more sophisticated than that, but that's a good um, start to getting the idea of how to read this, because if you actually just take a uh, one of those paragraphs and um, break it down into its various clauses, you, you quickly discover that he is, it's, it's almost like he's used 18 separate sentences, but just put conjunctions and uh, commas and things like that into them and uh, in order to give you associations. I mean, that's kind of it. Um I can give you an example. This is just the beginning of the arousing of thought. It's probably not the best example, but among other convictions formed in my common presence during my responsible, peculiarly composed life, there is one such also, an indubitable conviction that always and everywhere on the earth, among people of every degree of development of understanding, and of every form of manifestation of the factors which engender in their individuality all kinds of ideals, there is acquired the tendency, when beginning anything new, unfailingly to pronounce aloud, or, if not aloud, at least mentally, that definite utterance understandable to every, even quite illiterate person, which in different epochs has been formulated variously, and in our day is formulated in the following words, in the name of the Father and of the Son and in the name of the Holy Ghost. Now, if you break that down, you will discover that there's about four or five associations there that he wants to actually um, associate with this um, uh, Christian phrase, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. And, uh, And... you know, you have to ponder over this a while, but if you actually deconstruct that paragraph and just pull them out and make it a separate a set of separate sem- sentences, which I have done with some of these paragraphs, <laughs> then you get a very good idea of what it is that he is trying to put together as an association around this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the name of the Holy Ghost. So that's what... Is, has become actually is important in this third book. Um, the other thing worth mentioning, just in terms of research, the next paragraph 
in the tales. That is why I now also setting forth on this venture quite new for me, namely authorship, begin by pronouncing this utterance. And moreover, pronounce it not only aloud, but even very distinctly, and with a full, as the ancient Toulousites defined it, holy manifested intonation. So you've got the question of who are the ancient Toulousites, right? Right. And you have to do an awful lot of research to try and discover um, whatever happened there. But it appears that what he's referring to when he refers to the ancient Toulousites is that he's referring to the Cathars. Yes, I was going to say the Albigensians, the other name for them. Yeah, um, the Albigensian crusade that the Catholic Church carried out. Um, They set set most of them on fire, the, the Cathars. But the interesting thing about the Cathars was that as their... Um, fortifications were being attacked, they were chanting holy chants. And they did it even when they were marched into the fire. They chanted holy chants. Hence the important, or the linkage to uh, um, yes. uh, intonation, the importance of intonation. Yeah, so, so, you, so you discover if you actually start to put in the effort. Um, by following these things, uh, these very often just a few word references, you discover that they've been put there very deliberately and they make a very specific point. But if you don't do the research, you don't ever know um, what he meant when he said that. And is it fair to say that by doing the research, it begins to fix more clearly or to connect you more clearly with his intent as opposed to what might otherwise be your own free association yeah I think that, that would be correct to say I mean I can only speak for myself because in the end this is personal you know you can only read <laughs> the only person that knows how you read the book is you you know so Right, but um, but but to this point, like with this example you used, I've I've read that uh, uh, particular paragraph many 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 times, and to be honest with you, I don't think I, you know, once you know, uh, uh, stopped, full stop, and and really queried who are the Toulousites and what does this mean, and yet when you describe this and unpack this with this uh, meaning that we just uh, went over. There's a very different emotional sense that is aroused in that notion of intonation and that notion of beginning and what that what that could possibly mean and what that could possibly feel like. Yeah, it's just dramatic. So, so the truth is that in this third book, I'm giving a lot away. I'm not letting anything go by, or. Yeah, I'm not letting anything, I'm not knowingly letting anything go by that I think I can discover some meaning for in terms of research. Um, Or I'm not letting words go by without those words being analyzed for their etymological meaning. So that um, the the whole thing is laid bare. So that's um, that's what's going on in, in book three and book four of that series. Well, that's um, something we'll look we will look forward to uh, reading. Actually, my uh, my own teacher uh, um, 
used to uh, point out that in the middle of uh, that um, wonderful chapter one, um, right, right, buried in exactly, more or less exactly in the center of it, is a, uh, a very uh, uh, cogent discussion of uh, how thought works, essentially. And so, yes, and so, and um, it's um, it's wonderful to be able to have some demonstration to see how the rest proceeds. But but I wanted to get on to um, to another topic, which is uh, allegory. Stuart mentioned that earlier. It's of course, I think, fair. Uh, or you tell me if you agree or disagree that the 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 uh, the gist of the uh, book from chapter two onwards um, is is an extended allegory with many subsidiary allegories is that uh, is that a fair statement yes it, it's, it's like the most alarmingly complex set of russian nesting dolls you've ever seen that's a nice way to, that's and a nice it, metaphor for it yes yeah so you've got things like there is the arc of Beelzebub having been exiled to the solar system and his final beatification at the end of the book. So that's one arc. Right. Then there's the arc of sustain being ignorant of pretty much everything and gradually becoming educated in a particular way. So there's, a, there's another arc. Then if you can find it, you will discover that there's another arc that goes through the book, which is the arc of the development of man from the fertilization of an egg all the way through to his greatest potential. Um, and those things are separate. <clears throat> There's also an arc about the creation of the universe. So he he's using um, he's using the fact that he can dance between cosmoses. So the cosmos of man he can discuss. But then he can suddenly be talking about the cosmos of mankind and then he can suddenly be talking about the cosmos of great nature or he's talking about the cosmos of the planet or the cosmos of the solar system or the cosmos of the universe itself you know and and he dances between those things so the allegory is um is in one way or another um disguised or even or possibly difficult to follow because he's trying to, oh, it appears that he's trying to, in one way or another, tell you something. But in order for do it, to do it, he has to refer to the way it is with man and then refer to the way it is with the film system, or something like that, you know. So the the, <coughs> the allegory, you know, the, the fundamental unit, if you like, of, of meaning within Beelzebub's tale is the idea of a cosmos. And then the understanding that everything that lives and breathes is a cosmos, um, and uh, and that he will try and explain things by going from the large to the small, or the small to the large. Um, uh, go ahead. I can say that's kind of it, really. But I could, you know, we could go into um, the other things because you know there's this thing about mankind, and you know you go. Ashiyah to Shirmash is the end of the first book of that series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the second is Purgatory. And that's really about mankind as well, and, and the destiny of mankind. So everything is being threaded together in in ways that are, are difficult to um, 
that difficult to unravel and are not necessarily visible. So, you know, you have these strange... Um, you have these strange uh, raven-like creatures from this planet, uh, planet Mars. And there's Jonah Hahak and Jonah Rarak, um, who is his son, and Gurgis Godson. And, and when you actually look and, uh, at that, you're really looking at the intellectual center and its evolution. And you're looking at, very specifically, you look at the, its evolution in terms of the creation of certain bodies. <laughs> but it's just not clear. And that's what's going on, because you've got to follow the symbolism of the birds, because the birds represent the intellectual center, they always did, and so on. And, and then you've got to, in somewhere or you've got to wrestle meaning out of the chapters that mention them. So, so one of the things that, that, it's, that strikes me about this is, is the necessity to cultivate a capacity to hold something while other things are going on. Hold, like to hold a question, you mean? Yeah, to hold a question um, about, yes. for instance, what do birds mean when you first encounter them, and then yes. and then link those things together. And I think that's one of the training methods that's, that uh, you, you guys were talking about earlier, that the book um, invites people to um, engage. So, yeah. uh, go ahead. So I was going to say the, the other thing that's just worth mentioning, but I mean, I've mentioned it, I think, in one of the first, in the first uh, or second book that I wrote, but I can't <coughs> exactly recall it. Gurdjieff is using the symbolism of the New Testament, right? At various points in time, when he refers to various things, he's using the symbolism of the New Testament, and it's not obvious that he's doing that. And if you don't know the symbolism of the New Testament, um, you can get all of that from reading Maurice Nicole's book on um, Christianity, books on Christianity. But if you don't know that, then you're going to miss certain things that are fundamental um, to how you would understand um, um, the text. You know. So when he refers to the Romans as um, shepherds and the Greeks as fishermen. He's not referring to the Roman shepherds. He's referring to the Roman Catholic Church as shepherds. a collection of shepherds. Yeah. And the Greeks as fishermen. He's referring to the Greek Orthodox Church as a collection of fishermen. And that's not obvious at all to a, a reader um, in the first instance. Now, if you go and dance, forward into meeting the remarkable man, you will see the echoes of that. You will see, you, you, as soon as you actually realize that about Greeks and Romans, then you really have to, every time you see the word Greek or the word Italian, you actually have to consider whether he's referring back to what is characterized by um, shepherds and fishermen, and he always is. Well, this is a, a great uh, opportunity for me to um, uh, uh, do a, a little segue here into um, a discussion that, I, that I've been um, thinking about because I've been reading a book by a guy named John Dominic Crossan. 
He's the he's one of the guys who created the field of or the modern sense of the field of the historical Jesus research, which is often oh. which is often misinterpreted um, as saying that um, you know uh, the New Testament is 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 a bunch of stories that aren't true, and Cross in this book. Um, uh, which which is partly written as a memoir. It's it's a, it's actually a fairly interesting work because what he's doing in this book, a long way from Tipperary, um, is to is to interrogate his own life experience to see to what extent he has projected onto his scholarship his own experience of life. For example, you know when he labels. Uh, um, Jesus as a as a Mediterranean peasant, um, his critics were were saying that well you're just you're just seeing that through the lens of being a first generation uh, Irish after the liberation from uh, from British imperialism that kind of thing. So he's going through so he's going through in this, this book and and sort of uh, it's it's structured like a memoir but it's but it also has these. Um, sometimes quite long and elaborate digressions into um, how he can inter- how he can uh, interrogate to what extent that might have been present for him or what or, or not and um, and and uh, what he uh, gets into is then this distinction between the historical and um, uh, or the distinction between history or history or an historical reconstruction as a process and allegory. And he's, he makes it quite clear in this memoir book um, that he, um, he, he looks at two, two forms of allegory in the New Testament. One of them is um, parables by Jesus, that is, Jesus speaking uh, in order to... Um, provide uh, understanding and meaning about some aspect of what, what I would call spiritual practice. And um, secondarily, there are the parables about Jesus, which Crossan suggests are in fact uh, equally parables about um, the understanding of the very early the evangelists who wrote the um, you know the the four gospels and um, and, um, and these have been misinterpreted um, today so that when he his work is completely misinterpreted generally because people understand him to be saying well there there was no walking on the water there was no stilling of the storm there was you know none of these miracles actually happened when um, Crossan's point is you're missing the point that these are parables just as much as the parables that are attributed to have come from Jesus' mouth, and and this all links to uh, Gurdjieff because Gurdjieff, I mean, he's, he, in Beelzebub he, he very clearly states that people have lost contemporary people have lost the ability to understand allegory. That's that's an explicit statement. And then, um, from what you've all just what you, what you you know you've just uh, pointed to, and uh, what you're saying earlier, it's clear that he needs to go through this in a and and demonstrate how it's done, 
And he's dim, he's doing it in at this incredibly. I mean, he does it sometimes at a very simp, in a very simple way, but then with these uh, extended metaphors that apparently get dropped and then resurrected, as it were. Um, we're looking we're looking at a, at um, a training in a retraining in reading allegory. Does that does that sound like it agrees with your own ex, um, understanding? Yeah, I think that's uh, in line. I mean, the interesting thing about um, the interesting thing about the miracles of Christ isn't whether they happened or not, but um, the, the the people that want to be literal with religion have to have, in some way or other, some opinion about that. You know, they have to have some decision. They have to have some um, article of. Um, Faith to hold on to. It's really an article of belief, not an article of faith, but so on. You know, so they need that because they're they're the people who, um, in in the New Testament, stone is uh, representative of dogma. Mm-hmm. So the 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 woman who's taken in adultery is what she's actually done. She's a. It's the em- emotional attempt to associate one doctrine with another doctrine. Um, which actually normally leads to confusion. The woman taken in adultery is not actually adulterating sexually. She's adulterating um, a, um, a a doctrine. And when Christ says, let him who is out without sin cast the first stone, he's saying, well, you know, if you want to attack her with dogma, then let's do so from the point of view of not having um, uh, any sin associated with what you're doing. And of course, nobody can do anything. They, they can't throw a single stone because they've been put in the position of hypocrites. So the, um, the, that kind of thing, the, there is almost certainly no event that happened whether, uh, when um, a, a woman was caught in a, a adultery. Um, that Christ attended to. It's really very unlikely that that happened. But there again, there may have been an event where Christ made some point and used that allegory. Mm -hmm. And it it refers to some kind of event, but it will not have been written in the way it happened. It will have been written in order that the allegory works. Um, Because the, the allegory works is way more important. And you can see that all over... Gurdjieff's writing, if you read Meetings with Remarkable Men, you realize it's just a completely absurd idea that these guys went into the go-by desert on, I don't know, 20-foot stilts or something, right. and that that protected them from sandstorms. Anybody who believes that is an idiot, right. you know, because you only actually have to look at it from the point of view of um, uh, the practicality of it, you know. And just see what a sandstorm looks like, as if they just stop at 20 feet, because they don't. <laughs> you know? and, 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 and it's the same thing. He, it's, there may have been some event where Gurdjieff's uh, Seekers After Truth went out into the Gobi Desert, and they may have taken various precautions in order to be able to survive in the Gobi Desert. But Gurdjieff turned it into an allegory that deals with how to deal with negative emotions. I mean, that's really what's going on there. So the, the truth just doesn't matter. Well, that's a uh, what I find interesting with this, this line of discussion about how you use allegory. How, how, how do we... How do we... 
get specific practical knowledge out of allegory. And to say, when we say today people have lost the ability to really think in terms of allegory, I think more specifically that's what that means. Because in, in, in a lot of ways I think people, now, now allegory is like entertainment. We, we hear stories and it uh, pr- uh, provokes a movement in the uh, feeling center and we can go through a journey, but to get specific information about the nature of being and specific information about how to deepen one's presence in being is something that I think Gurdjieff is trying to deliver through allegory, and I don't think we know how to approach that typically. No, we don't. We, uh, but it's a, it's a learned skill. I mean, the first thing that I think happens, I mean, I have a group who focuses on reading um, Gurdjieff's writing. It's not the only thing that they do, but they they do a lot more of it than most other groups would do. Um, the first thing to understand is that allegory is not understood by the intellect. The intellect plays a part, but it doesn't understand allegory at all. Um, the... The higher emotional center, or let's say the higher levels of the emotional brain, um, they do not deal in the kind of cast iron definitions uh, of words that the, that the intellectual center is normally dealing with. Um, what, what is actually required of you to understand an allegory, because it's, it's, it's delivered at the level of symbols, so each individual word starts to be important and how you try to understand that. And, and it doesn't have a confining definition in an allegory. It has a, an expansive de- definition, you know. So, you know, the basic idea in the work of the horse, the carriage, and the driver, you know, the, the horse is the emotional center because horses behave very much like the emotional center behaves, not identical. If, if you start to look at this intellectually, and you discover horse behavior that is nothing to do with emotional behavior uh, and start crying foul, that's because you aren't really allowing the symbol to do its work. And and you aren't really allowing a different kind of meaning from a literal meaning to, to get attached to that word. So the appreciation of allegory, in my opinion, involves the working together of the highest part of the intellect that, um, that, that you can get working and um, uh, as high a part of the emotional sense as you can get working and for them to be holding each other's hands. Now, I would say also that what you're actually trying to do with that is you're trying to play a note. Right? Or I think of it in terms of trying to play a note. And the very highest part of the emotional center in my opinion, if you play the right note at the lower level, the higher part of the emotion center will start playing harmonics and knowledge descends on you. And I think that that's, even if you like a technique, but in order to do it, you're going to have to pay for it because it means that you're going to have to spend an awful lot of time working in the way that I've just vaguely outlined rather than talked about in any detail with allegories uh, and the allegories that you trust. Because you know, an allegory just because <laughs> just because it happens to be an allegory doesn't mean that it's got anything useful for you inside it. You know, right. well, a, Jonathan Swift wrote a, an allegory called The Tale of the Tub. Uh, you, you, it's not much use to you. 
So uh, you you to complete the chord, you mentioned the uh, linkage of the higher intellectual center and the higher emotional center. How does the moving and instinctive center play a role in this kind of approach? Well, the I mean, this is difficult, right? And it's difficult for me to talk about this because my knowledge is insufficient. It's not that I don't know anything, but I do know um, some things. And one of the things is that the, the way the, um, the instinctive center itself it looks after the internal mechanisms of the body, and I tend to think of it as the emotional brain of the body itself rather than the emotional brain of the man because it has a certain kind of emotionality to it. But it's only concerned with internals. Um, so the moving center is the, is, is the thing that can be concerned with externals. Um, and it is the seat of imagination. It's the seat of imitation. It's when you're born from minute one, what you are doing in order to learn is imitation. And the moving center is doing it. And, you know, you learn to... Um, baby learns to walk and baby learns to talk, you know, that's all moving centre. Nothing else is going on there. The, the first words that even the, um, you know, even two or three years down the line when, a, when the baby is speaking, that's repeating things. Um, they may be very clever in their repetition. It's not like uh, that anyone is denying that, but they're just um, into repetition. Um, the wonderful thing about the moving center is it can create images, it can represent. So its participation is, and I think it really helps, I think in, in one way or another, I think it helps both the intellect and the emotional center. If you want to um, take the idea of a magic carpet, right, then the idea of the magic carpet is actually... You know, the, if, if I understand it correctly, it's actually a reflection of the fact that they hid truth in the carpets themselves. And that's why the carpets were magical. But the idea of you being able to fly and therefore ascend on a carpet, right, um, it really helps in some way or other if you can actually picture it. Hmm. And I don't know why it helps, but it just does seem to help. So I think that that's the the um, contribution of the moving center in that. Well, I want to pull it back to um, uh, the intellectual center for a moment because I, I have in front of me a page uh, from your um, uh, the first uh, volume of To Fathom the Gist uh, approaches to the writings of Gurdjieff and and it's the the page about objective science versus subjective science. And you, oh, right. and you make a you make a nice distinction there um between the two which which i think is 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 helpful here and if for objective science um you you say we are given formulations of fundamental laws and information about them it is suggested to us that these laws come from quote higher mind unquote and can only be thoroughly understood by higher mind our goal as objective scientists is to attempt to comprehend these laws and how they operate. We expect to adopt an attitude of skepticism as we investigate them. We do not formulate original hypotheses. This is the contrast with the subjective science, uh, in other words, commonly understood science. Um, we do not formulate original hypotheses 
and investigate them, but that we do formulate personal hypotheses about what these laws may mean or imply in our attempts to understand them. And we carry out experiments to gather information. As such, we confirm or refute the formulations we've been given. So, um, I mean, this is, a, this, this is a, an extremely active process um, that you're describing. It seems to me this is the process, part of the process, that um, is happening when we're tr- un- trying to understand allegory, certainly in the way that you were just discussing earlier. Does that sound right? Oh, yeah, that sounds completely correct. So, um, so this this um, distinction between subjective science, which is what most people understand as science, um, is quite distinct because there you, you say the scientist begins with a hypothesis that is most likely based on some already existing quote object, uh, accepted truths unquote, and then the scientist. Uh, proceeds by formulating experiments, analyzes the results, and either proclaims the hypothesis has been wholly or partly confirmed, or, if that's not the case, then alters the hypothesis to conform with the experimental results. So you call that bottom-up science versus top-down um, in in objective science, and this is all this is all very clear and, and helpful to me because I always I was always having honestly, uh, you know, problems with the idea. I mean, I, I, I kept encountering o- over these many decades uh, this idea of, of objectivity that, that Gurdjieff pointed to. Um, but one of the things that, that you later point out is is um, is that actually these things, if if we if we hold on to this discrimination too far or inappropriately in the wrong place, we they they actually start to break down these distinctions. And that's an important aspect, uh, it seems to me, of too, too, because it, because we're looking at the nature of language, and that's what, and that's what's um, uh, where we can get, um, where we can uh, uh, metaphorically here um, start to, to believe that um, Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, whereas in the in the, in the actual gospel story. We actually have Jesus insisting that the disciples um, distribute what was already present in a fair and just way, and then collect the remains at the end. And that's a and that's a that's a, an obvious metaphor for how the church, how Jesus is enjoining these people that he's presumably empowering to act as leaders in the church. Um, to treat um, the uh, the body of the church, as it were, and and you know, um, but it gets it gets um, it gets misconstrued very easily as as this um, miracle that either either you believe it or you don't, and you know the inclination of our time is to just dismiss it, and you and then you miss looking for this other level of uh, interpretation. So that's yeah, that's yeah. yeah, just so I just want to make sure that we're 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 both on the same beam here as it were. Yeah, the the other book um yeah, I didn't mention at the beginning. I'm writing a book called Gurdjieff's Hydrogen mm. which is actually dealing with objective science. So actually 
in one way and as I take it further. <clears throat> what actually happened was that, you know, um, in Search of the Miraculous, in, in one way or another, um, published a whole series of ideas and very few people did anything with them. And those, are, you know, their book was called Fragments, and it's called Fragments because they were fragments. Mm-hmm. They weren't a complete um, uh, statement of objective science. But the, <clears throat> if you go with them, if you um, uh, start with those ideas and try and pursue them using the words that were um, uh, that were given to describe them, you can take them a lot further than than they have been taken. <clears throat> And also, amongst the many things that frustrated me, like, for instance, for a period of time it frustrated me that nobody even read the tales in the Gurdjieff groups that I encountered. Sometimes there'd be a few people that would, but there's nobody that particularly understood anything. But the same is true of objective science. The same is true of the statement of the science that Gurdjieff um, is um, teaching to Spensky. Nobody understands it. <clears throat> Ask anybody a question about it, you know, a meaningful question about it, and they'll look, look, look at you blankly and say, I don't know. Because they don't. And that was my experience with um, lots of digital groups I encountered. If you suddenly asked them, for instance, uh, it, it sounds like it ought to be an easy question to answer. How big? How big is the sun absolute? There's silence on our end. That's for sure. (laughs) And it's actually very knowable because you actually have to do a little bit of thinking. So that's interesting. um, Yeah. So what I what I suggest uh, is that uh, we we have to take a short break at the hour. So why don't we uh, 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 start our next segment with uh, that very question and your your process on how how we might think about this because i think i think this is useful and and this i have a lot of questions around what you just opened up here so um why don't we uh we'll we'll we'll, i'll switch you over to rob for uh, a moment and we can take a short break and be back here in a couple minutes okay you are listening to the mystical positivist i'm your host Stuart goodnick Joining me today is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we speak by telephone with Robin Bohr, a pupil of Fourth Way teacher Rena Hands, an author of an ongoing series of books on the writings of George Gurdjieff entitled To Fathom the Gist. The first two books in the series are Approaches to the Writings of G.I. Gurdjieff and The Arch Absurd. We will return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from the uh, CD called Music of the Priory, Gurdjieff to Hartman, performed by Rosemary Knott on piano. This piece is called Laudamus.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we speak by telephone with Robin Bloor, a pupil of Fourth Way teacher Rena Hands and author of an ongoing series of books on the writings of George Gurdjieff entitled to Fathom the Gist. The first two books in that series are Approaches to the Writings of G.I. Gurdjieff and The Arch Absurd. So before, so um, uh, in the first hour of the show, we were talking about a number of things. Uh, uh, we were speaking about allegory and uh, objective and subjective science, and at the into the first hour, as we were beginning to uh, talk about objective and subjective science, you stopped robbing me in our tracks with the question of how large is the sun absolute. So before we proceed with that question, I think it would be useful just to sketch for listeners less familiar with some of Gurdjieff's writings what the sun absolute is in this uh, allegorical uh, cosmology, and then we can get into the size. So do you want me to go on with that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the the sun absolute is referred to in Beelzebub's tale as the domain of the absolute. It's 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 where the absolute um, abides, if you like. Um, the the question really has got to do with, um, or the way that you can answer the question has got to do with the way that Gurdjieff explains atoms and laws. Um, it, it starts to become obvious. Um, we live in a very odd... Uh, I don't suppose anybody thinks it's odd, but it, it always appeared to me to be quite an odd universe. We, we are um, creatures living on a planet. Uh, a whole family of planets rotates around the sun. So we've got these... Planets that are pretty much spherical, rotating all in the same plane, or roughly in the same plane around the sun. The suns appear to be, as far as we know, all the same in the sense of they seem to all have planets surrounding them. The suns cluster together into galaxies called the Milky Way, and the whole of the universe can thus be considered to be um, the collection of all the galaxies, of which there is at least one trillion, according to the latest estimate. Um, so the question, what is, this, what is the answer? Well, in the rare creation, all worlds, the note immediately below the absolute is deemed to be the sun absolute. And the whole point about the sun absolute is that's the abode of the absolute. But if you look at it in terms of vibrations, or you look at it in terms of densities, um, uh, one, you know, well, it's kind of a statement in the work that the, that the absolute is the least dense thing in the universe. Certainly weighable and measurable, but the least dense. The sun absolute, therefore, must be on a level of density which is just below the density of the absolute. If you look for evidence in the universe as to where you will find anything that is of that rarefied nature. It's between the stars, not in them. 
It's between the solar systems, not within the solar system. It's the the so the answer that I started to head towards when I first considered this question is that there's some absolute. Um, how big is it? It's the universe. That's how big it is. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and then you look at the way the Gurdjieff describes atoms, and you say atom of the moon, very dense, atom of the earth, dense, atom of all planets, dense, but atom of the sun, not so dense, atom of all suns, not so dense, atom of all worlds, atom of the sun, absolute, subject only to three laws, extremely rarefied. Um, but Gurdjieff insists that all of these um, densities of matter actually interpenetrate each other in the same way that you can, for example, um, you can put sand into a glass and uh, fill the glass, but it's not really full because you could pour water into the glass and you discover that a certain amount of water will actually go into the, into the glass. Um, and that is more rarefied than sand. Uh, and then you can put um, you can put gas into the water and the water will um, accept a certain amount of gas and then you can put ionized um, elements or ionized gas into the gas and then you've got four things inside each other all nesting inside each other again like Russian dolls you know um, and Gurdjieff, in explaining um, his cosmology, insisted that all of these things interpenetrate each other, and therefore we are, at this point in time, being interpenetrated by atoms of the absolute. It's just that we have no way of reacting with them. And because we have no way of reacting with them, they might as well be invisible. In fact, they are. Like neutrinos. More or less. Uh, it would be like neutrinos. I, I kind of speculated around that. I have a feeling that there is something even more rarefied than a neutrino, but you certainly, mm -hmm. you're, you're looking at those high levels of vibration, extremely fast-moving um, mm -hmm. uh, things. You're looking at that level. The problem when you get to that level, if you actually look at it, is it's really difficult for us to know whether we can create instruments to look for the things that might be there, mm -hmm. but we don't know is there. But we can just... Neutrino is the boundary, as, as, as far as I know at the moment. Mm -hmm. A neutrino, we can just detect it, but we, we can't detect many of them. Right. You know, it's, uh, we have to, you know, go down into these caves and remove all other sources of vibration in order to actually take a look at them. And even then, we don't much of it. So this raises a interesting question about the limit of contemporary scientific instruments and the utilization of a sensitized body as its own kind of instrument because it seems to me that we have the capacity within ourselves to detect the presence of this so-called rarefied energetic formation through a deepening of our own experience and certain kinds of practices. And an analogy I would use to describe this is that, you know, if you listen to profound music being played, let's say sacred music being played on some sort of instrument, um, it can have a quality 
of presence that you're not really going to be able to capture and extract uh, by looking at a, uh, a spectrographic analysis of the recording of that piece of music. There's something that's going on there that's subtler, that touches something uh, very different. And so you have to have an instrument available that's composed of the same level of vibration in order to detect the presence of that vibration. And I don't think you're going to get there with a uh, physical embodiment because that, that can only record a, a up to a certain level of vibration. We have to rely on a developed and sensitized human instrument in order to begin to do verification of this level of objective science. Yeah, I, I would agree with that entirely. I think the um, I think the level, if we refer to Gurdjieff's hydrogens, then the energy of the immune system is hydrogen 96. But also he described that as the energy of animal magnetism, which is a phenomenon that science doesn't recognize. So yeah. Yeah, now let, let, let's let's let, let's just stop for a second, just to make sure that I want to make sure anyone listening who isn't really grounded in this language can uh, follow along. Just in short, in the early works of Gurdjieff, particularly in the book uh, *In Search of the Miraculous*, which was written by Ospensky but quotes extensively in Gurdjieff's early talks, there's descriptions of levels of energy or matter or vibration and it's called the level the the table of hydrogens and so when we talk about a hydrogen with a certain number that's associated with a quality of energy that we can recognize within ourselves so the level of hydrogen of the physical body or a physical food is different than the level of hydrogen of say our blood or the level of hydrogen of uh, the air we breathe and the level of hydrogen of the mental impressions we have is still treated in this system as a material vibration, but it's at a higher grade. And so higher levels of consciousness, even beyond those that most people commonly participate in, could be represented as a certain level of hydrogen. Is that is that a fair way of uh, describing this? Yes, it is. It, 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 I, I would say that's very accurate. So, so then, I, th so I just wanted to frame that. So, when people hear you saying hydrogen ninety six refers to, uh, uh, did you say the instinctive level there? Um, well, the energy of the immune system. Yeah, the immune system. Um, so that's basically saying that that functioning and that energetic functioning, that that coherence, is vibrating at uh, hydrogen ninety six. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it, it, it's got a vibration of in that area. The hydrogens are collections, if you like, they're categories of substance, so there can be many substances at hydrogen 96. So, um, so but that's the level of science. At, at the level of hydrogen 96, it is already there are phenomenon that science itself can't detect. But at the level of hydrogen 48, or, or impression, um, uh, there is... A, Science hasn't got any decent theories to explain any of the stuff that goes on there. It can explain bits of it, but it hasn't got anything coherent. But the energy of the moving center and the um, uh, emotional center, uh, hydrogen 24, it's completely out of its depth. And at hydrogen 12, um, it, it, it has nothing that I think it could ever detect. But as you say, 
you know, we experience hydrogen trials. In fact, we would be dead if we never if we didn't have any. So, you know, it's, it's necessary for our lives. And even a higher hydrogen, a hydrogen six. And and science has got no um, instrument that in any way can measure that in a meaningful way. It might be able to detect it because some substances that fall within those categories that can be detected, but it, it doesn't know how they behave. So, so I, I guess I, the question that comes up with this is uh, to. to uh, to stake, step back a little bit from this model is that uh, you mentioned uh, at the end of the last hour that Gurdjieff spoke about these things early in his work and uh, his early talks uh, contain this kind of information. By the time we get to the 1930s, it seems like it's buried fairly deeply in, in allegory in uh, Beelzebub's tales to his grandson. And when I look at the teaching style he affected in uh, the uh, 1940s it seemed like beyond the reading of this material he was he wasn't actively trying to convey these these images um, and so I, I think the question then is what how does one use this model for practical work uh, how do you, how does one use it as a um, let's say, a point of friction or a point of effort in one's work uh, that's distinct from uh, essentially learning a, a set of uh, mental ideas and being able to spout them off and, uh, and, and you know, sound, sound uh, uh, very literate, at least in a fourth-way sense. Um, so the... Um, um, this, this, the first thing is that let me just explain how I use because uh, I'm not necessarily a perfect example, but it gives some idea of uh, what use these things are. Um, there are particular characteristics that are um, associated with particular energies. So we have the, um, we have the situation where we receive impressions. And we can classify all impressions that we receive as being a particular category. So one of the questions that Gurdjieff asks in In Search of Miraculous, right, he maintains that the whole of the um, objective science is entirely materialistic. Everything is material, and therefore knowledge is material. Knowledge is the same. Um, so the question is, um, if knowledge is material, then um, uh, the question is really how much is there and how much can anyone have? And what do you understand by the idea that knowledge is material? Um, and to ask a, science, uh, a scientist that question, it floors them completely. They don't have any representation of what knowledge would be. Uh, and they would have no way of measuring it, you know. So it becomes a question that goes beyond science, but it's actually an interesting question. You guys got the answer? I wish. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I think that um, uh, there, there, are, there are conclusions I would draw about the, uh, the assertion that knowledge is uh, material, which is that 
you know, knowledge, knowledge at some level represents a representation. Or <laughs> that that's kind of sounds funny. Now, knowledge is a representation, um, and it is as being material. That means it's not permanent, and so it's it's something that's subject to change. And so it uh, suggests a uh, universe that is um, constantly throwing up representations and configurations, and these configurations are always subject to change. And so there may there is something behind all of that which transcends knowledge, perhaps that is changeless. But the uh, that which is the the realm of representation is also the realm of change. So that that's one thing I would do with that. That's very interesting. You won't wait because it's not a direction that I never thought about. So that's nice. I think um, we can actually step it down one because it's an interesting thing to do. We can say, well, okay, knowledge is, um, uh, there's only so much knowledge. Um, there's only so much 548, there's only so many impressions as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's easier to see. If you actually look at the, the planet and you realize that all the impressions are happening, whether you're talking about, you know, things happening on coral reefs, um, down under the ocean where one fish sees another, um, or human beings seeing things, or um, depending on how you would define um, Im- impressions, what um, the level of um, a worm taking in light is, and so on and so forth, you know. But it, it's quite likely to be the case that the amount of impressions on Earth are constant. Because if one set of um, uh, animals gets wiped out in one way or another, um, something rises to take its place. It always does. It probably always will. So, you know, the amount of impressions that are occurring on the planet right now right, are probably roughly constant, you know. Um, information, that those impressions are information. If, if I tell you how to, if you didn't know and I tell you how to, change the wheel on a car, right? I haven't given you any knowledge. What I've done is I've given you some information. But if you use your intelligence to, assuming it's correct information, if you use your intelligence to work that out, then when the situation arises that you need to change the wheel on a car, you follow that information and it becomes knowledge for you because you have tried out the scene that it works. So that means that to trans- transform information into knowledge, it requires effort. It is exactly right. You know, so there can only be so much knowledge. It really means that um, there's only so many people working on themselves at uh, a particular level. And there's obviously this gradation from knowledge. There's only a few people working on themselves relatively speaking, to the whole population, which numbers over 7 billion now, you know. Well, well this, this uh, invites to me the question, is, um, is this conversion um, of information to knowledge dependent then upon bodies, and how does, how does that work? Well, I mean, it, it, we know this, you know, um, at least we three know this. Mm-hmm. We have, in one way or another, we've encountered ideas that, first of all, 
not trivially easy to understand in terms of the psychology of man. Mm-hmm. We've been given various exercises or tasks to complete that when we complete them, it's, it's gathered data for us and we can now have a better understanding of what um, a particular idea means. Um, so we've done this, you know, and we also know that knowledge at that level, which is the knowledge that runs through, like a thread, through pretty much all spiritual activity, it's not common, and most people don't try it. I mean, they can even be following one religion or another in the most devoted way and never try anything. You know, it's entirely possible to do that, but we are those kinds of people that that just have to try it out. So, so um, to again go back to the assertion that knowledge is material, or um, equivalently, knowledge represents uh, an energetic state, if you will, that some very simple models of uh, of the energy distribution of physical systems that come out of things like quantum uh, physics uh, show that uh, energetic systems distribute themselves naturally into a distribution of numbers of particles in different energy states. There's a distribution, I think, called the Boltzmann distribution that is the governing mathematics. And so that would suggest, you know, to go back to your... Uh, uh, contention a moment ago is that by law if knowledge is material uh, there's a smaller number of people engaged in the work to uh, accrue higher grade knowledge than there is uh, uh, the numbers of people that are at work uh, accruing knowledge at a different level which may be practical knowledge of just living a life yeah. but that also, this, but what's interesting about that is it it uh, requires then, or it necessitates then, that um, it's it's not really possible, and in fact, it's uh, counterindicated to try to evangelize uh, this kind of spiritual tradition, because effectively, either there is a uh, a natural inbuilt inbuilt yearning to push the bounds of uh, knowledge of being or it doesn't even occur. It doesn't occur to one. And if one convinces someone for whom it doesn't occur that this is something to do, then it simply becomes a low-grade religion. Well, yes. Well, I mean, I, I think that the way that religions work anyway um, is that they, uh, there's an outer shell of a religion, assuming that there's something internal to it at all. There's an outer shell of a religion that meets with all people, or all normal people who wish to make contact with some set of faith, you know. And then there's normally some kind of inner circle which will, um, which you can go seeking for and um, try and find within any religion. Um, and I would suggest in the Christian religion it's Mount Athos. But, you know, it's certain monasteries, certain things are going on, but nobody is talking about it and that information isn't given out. But eventually people who are ardent enough in searching for something will get directed there by people in the church who know. 
And I think that goes for all kinds of churches. I think that goes for Islam. I think that goes for Buddhism. I think that goes for anything you encounter. Right. To the extent that uh, uh, the there's sufficient distribution of people in in such an organization that can recognize those who have that yearning and can direct them appropriately, then that would be the yeah. religion functioning in its optimal way. Yeah, and, and I have no idea if that's true, except that I, I've heard enough stories to indicate that it may well be true, but I don't know if it's true. Um, I would have had to have had some kind of personal experience to attest to its truth. But I came very close to it with some people in Iran, um, where if different things had happened, I'd have gone out there and been introduced to something that it never had. And actually, to be honest, I'm, part of me thinks um, Iran's really not a good place to be right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, these material bodies might have a hard time there depending on circumstance yeah well so um, so we have a mutual friend who, whose name I will not mention uh, who um, and and I think it's a, a natural impulse to want to share um, knowledge and share the ways in which knowledge can be, um, I don't know if acquired is quite the right word, but um, in way, the ways in which information can be converted into knowledge. But um, um, the discussion you guys have, have just had would suggest that there's, and it certainly conforms to my uh, uh, previous experience of reading about some of some of these th- things that, that in fact it's it's uh, it's hard to distribute um, knowledge or the capacity to convert information to knowledge widely, and if that's the case, um, then is it um, ethical? to narrowly restrict the um, um, the requisites, whatever those happen to be, of conversion of information to knowledge. And if not, I mean, we can look at it either either way. Is there uh, is it ethical to um, try to disseminate it widely, or to hold it? Um, um, more narrowly. Do you have a view on that, Robin? Yeah, it's not a simple thing because we're dealing uh, with uh, what I think is a fairly complex situation. Yeah. Um, First of all, um, there's nothing there's nothing that um, even if one accepted subjective morality or ideas of fairness or whatever, there's nothing um, in terms of the kind of knowledge we're talking about, there's nothing um, that, there's no evidence to suggest that anybody wants it. <laughs> well, that, granted. You know, we want it. You know, we go searching for it, but the, the idea that there is um, uh, an extraordinary number of people lining up who really, really, really wish to have this stuff, um, there's just no evidence that that's the case. They, it's most people that come to the work 
um, start to uh, be fed um, knowledge from this kind of <clears throat> place, if you like. Um, and a lot of them just pass on, you know. They all, a lot of them thought it was a self-help organization. doesn't seem to be doing that, so I'm going somewhere else. <laughs> that kind of... Yeah, we we have a a, a friend who's a, a, a Tibetan teacher who's been on this show uh, many times, Ken McLeod, who often has the refrain that a spiritual community, you know, serves several functions. You know, uh, for most people, it serves a social function. Yeah, our, our Gigi used to say one of the main social functions was to hook people up in couples. Yeah, to find find appropriate mates that are appropriately. Uh, Right. Uh, uh, matched, but but that that what's rarest in his observation are people who have a, a the way he frames it the term he uses is has a genuine interest in the mystical. Most most people either want you know social camaraderie or they want relief from their suffering in some form or another. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of desire to self help. Um, I I can imagine people coming to. Um, I would not recommend it personally, but I can imagine people coming to the work in search of a mate. Um, the theory being that I'll possibly run into somebody that is um, less mundane than the people I encounter otherwise. Uh, I can see that that might be an attraction, but pretty much every relationship that I have much knowledge of that occurred in the work, including um, one of my own, um, was disastrous. <laughs> this is not a good place. <laughs> it's not effective. Uh, well, they work, but the percentages are really low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I take your point, uh, and and yet uh, that doesn't obviate the fact that I think people want to f do any. Uh, many people, anyway, are motivated to look for any factor that they think might improve the chances of finding someone with whom. Um, something deeper might develop, and and that's that's one way that some people seem to, uh, or, or one reason that some pe some people um, will show up at a spiritual school or something. But uh, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> but, but but it doesn't mean, as you as you point out, it doesn't mean they're going to get that right when so, they show up. But but that, again, you know, going back to the the point of uh, the number of people who, uh, as as our friend Ken would put it, uh, you know, have a genuine interest in the mystical, or as we might put it in a Gurdjieff sense, have a genuine interest in real uh, work on self, is more of a mi is a minority, and and that's that's pro but that probably you know based off of what we were talking about earlier is that's that's not a problem that's just the way things are yeah. and it's almost necessarily the way things are and so and, and that doesn't even mean that people are encountering these ideas to relieve themselves from suffering or to as it were fix themselves of some form of dysfunction isn't even a bad thing because I think some of the ideas in the work actually can function in that way, just like mindfulness can function in that way. But yes, I think that's true. But I it, mean, it's, it's not. It, it's not. Um, it's not a hundred percent in the sense that some of these ideas can um, destabilize people as well. This is what Rena Hans is referred to as a fast motorbike to hell. 
I've um, seen I've seen evidence of that myself, so I can you know yeah. agree with that. Yeah, um, but in in general, positive, I'd say. Yeah, and it, uh, so then you know this this uh, go again goes back then to the uh, you know for me you know we were we were talking earlier about the materialist notion of the uh, the work and how one can use some of the let us say more. Um, systematic uh, ideas of the work uh, practically for oneself uh, and you know we, we I think we got so far as to understand from a notion that knowledge is m- matter that uh, <laughs> to, maybe to put it uh, uh, a, a little cheekily is that the, the work is not for everyone but how does one who has a serious interest in deepening their presence and deepening their um their experience of the nature of their being utilize the the tools of or the ideas of the uh, uh, hydrogens in oneself as a a means for getting there or you know uh, 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 supporting that kind of work. Okay. There are a number of things. The problem is that we, we don't have anything like the amount of time that would be necessary to go into the depth. Um, there is basically the work asserts that there are two laws that govern the universe. Um, uh, and in fact, that the creation of the universe was the uh, letting loose of these laws, the law of seven and the law of three, uh, accompanied by a particular note or a particular sound, um, a particular vibration. Um, so it, it's necessary to understand the law of three. The law of three is very difficult for most people to understand. But one of the consequences, and I'm really not going to explain this from any depth at all, one of the consequences of the law of three is that there are only six processes. There are only six kinds of processes. And anything that you observe at the smallest, the largest level, at the, at the astronomical scale, at the um, cellular scale, at the subatomic scale, everything that's going on is one of these six processes. Uh, and therefore, recognizing which you want to, which processes you want to happen around you and which processes you don't, is one of the ways of using the law of three. That's a, a thing. Um, we've been working with that in my group recently. Um, it's enough to say that only one of those six processes is actually of any use to anyone in the work um, in terms of their personal evolution. Uh, and one of those processes is to be avoided by everybody in the work, that's a process of corruption. Uh, and, um, and you need to at least to be able to recognize those two processes and then uh, start to orientate yourself towards... Um, giving some priority to one and, and uh, providing, finding a way to push the other away from yourself. So let me, That's let me, practical. Okay, so yeah, let me, let me uh, see if I, let me rephrase that to see if I get that, that, you know, from a study of the law of three, one can come to see that there are a, a finite set, six six different processes in which situations move from one state to another state, let's say. 
and we can see in our own lives in the muddle of all the activities that go on from the facts and the events outside of ourselves to our reactions at an emotional, intellectual, and physical level within ourselves that we can come to develop a taste for what process is happening at a given moment if we make that a subject of ongoing inquiry. And when we have that distinction or that clarity, then there's the possibility of choice to choose. Or at least to create conditions to support. Yeah, what process. Yeah, that's better, Robbie, to create conditions to support. Yeah. That's the important point, really. It's like all the processes that allow one to ascend involve one being passive. Yeah. Right. No, it's way way more complicated than that. So if you just take of that course. statement, the processes that allow you to involve involve you being passive to something higher. You combine with something higher, and you rise. You yeah. know that's the idea, and, and we all kind of know that in a way. We kind of know that in order to um, externally consider, we all we all know we need an inner peace to do that. We you, you, you can't be um, chasing after thoughts of worry about what someone thinks of you and at the same time be present at the same time, interact positively with someone who's known your experience tells you that, you know. And, and these are, you know, all of these things, the problem is that the, the work has got, um, it, it's a fairly complex set of ideas. So we've also got the law of seven, which is, no matter how well you are, it's probably a way of understanding. No matter how well you are progressing in any given direction, you will come to a halt. And it's very difficult to go past those points of um, intervals in the octave, is what they're called, but, you know, those points of stop. So we've got, you know, the fact that we can at least interpret the fact that <clears throat> I seem to be going to doing so well earlier and I was having all of these moments of presence um, uh, in in my life every day, every week, and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, it all seems dead. I seem lifeless. I can't make anything happen. I'm, um, you know, I'm going to go and eat worms or whatever the, you know, whatever that cry of despair is. You know, right. and, and and that happens, and it happens, it happens to me, and and it's like. Knowing to expect that at least is um, healthy. At least it isn't you run into the dark night of the soul with no preparation whatsoever. Um, you you at least are prepared that there are going to be hard times in this. It's not an easy game. Right. But what, what I hear you saying is that we're, that one takes these ideas of the work and creates a uh, relationship it's almost like a love affair with these ideas and right. bringing them to life in the course of your experience that that one begins to see the law of three or the law of seven uh, in operation and it's not about uh, mastering an intellectual representation and being able to look good at fourth way parties it's it's a matter of it's a matter of training the organism to be sensitive to these things that you're pointing to. Yeah, and not just at the intellectual center, but allowing right, it right. to... Right, the, the full organism. 
Yes, that's actually that's a very good point, Stuart. It's not just the intellectual sense. Any, well, it's like guys like me who were young or strong intellect always manage to do well academically for strong intellect and so on and so forth. We are um, going to have to really change ourselves to handle the work because the intellectual centre is of very little use to you in the work. But it can be useful. And you do need to be intelligent. You can't be, you know, you, you can't be um, uh, stupid about what you're doing. You've got to apply common sense. And that's the point. The point is you have to apply common sense, not intellectual logic. It's common sense. And that's what I had to learn over a period of time because I have what a number of people have described as a fearsome intellect, you know, give me uh, some kind of philosophical problem to jump on. And and I will come out with stuff that is, you know, in polemic, it'll, it'll just sound very, very strong. Um, and it's all useless. All of that um, capability is actually useless because it really is the knowledge of the work needs to be in the heart, not, not in the head. Yeah, I have to con- I have to confess, Rob has accused me of this as well at times, <laughs> and accused himself as well. <laughs> but no, I I, I, no, I appreciate this. This is a um, a good note for us to kind of draw the conversation to a close because we were talking about ideas throughout this, but um, uh, I think the the point I appreciate you making is that it's not. It's not the ideas in and of themselves, and it's not the ideas floating around in the cloud of one's uh, head. It's the relationship, the uh, uh, and the. It's the intention, really. Yeah. To it's the intention to examine this stuff, examine ourselves, and examine how these how how we relate to the various aspects of our lives in the universe, and and the Gurdjieff's, you know, Gurdjieff's thought has a lot of tools for that. I mean, that's the bottom line for me, at least in a substantial part for this discussion. Yeah, and as you said, we don't have enough time to do justice to all of this, but at least we, I think we, you know, sketched out a few interesting themes here. And I hope. I hope. So, uh, but, but, but if there's any failure, it's on our side, <laughs> not yours, Robin. Right. But, Robin, I, I really appreciate this, especially on short notice, uh, you, you uh, taking the time to uh, join us no, in this it's, conversation. It's a it's, a, it's, all, it's so all, the, I mean, the only other thing that I would add is, is that as you were speaking and describing, summarizing, uh, the, the, the whole point for me of the work is that you become the alchemist crucible itself. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. A nice metaphor. And that's the, the and if you understand that, then the intellect is is only a very plays a minor part in being in the crucible. Yeah, exactly. It's the little sparkle. <laughs> the sparkle. <laughs> <laughs> the icing. <laughs> the icing. Sugar-filled icing on the cake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you so much, Robin Lure. This has been a, a delightful conversation for us, and and you floored me with a question, which is not something that happens that often in these conversations. So thank you for that. I was complete. Although I will say, I thought, well, where could it end? How could I mean? The thought that came into my head was. Um, well, it have to be the whole universe, right? Because where else would it, would 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 the sun absolute end? But I but I appreciate your um, 
detailed explanation of how you get there. Okay, well, thanks. All right, thanks, thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week, we've been speaking by telephone with Robin Bloor, a pupil of fourth-way teacher Rena Hands, an author of an ongoing series of books on the writings of George Gurdjieff entitled To Fathom the Just. The first two books of that series are Approaches to the Writings of G.I. Gurdjieff and The Arch Absurd. The content of next week's show on The Mystical Positivist remains to be seen, so tune in. Uh, We'll have something on the air next Saturday, June 1st, from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Time. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, the um, uh, Thursdays at Many Rivers event this Thursday, May 30th, will be music from California to Japan. That'll be with Masayuki Koga. Japanese Music Institute founder and our own Stuart Goodnick. So that's, uh, once again, Thursday at Many Rivers Books and Tea at 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol at 7.30 p.m. The shakuhachi is the classic Japanese bamboo flute. Masayuki Koga, one of the premier shakuhachi players and teachers of the world, came to the U.S. in the 1970s and established the Japanese Music Institute of America to teach and play traditional Japanese music and contemporary music on traditional instruments. In June, Koga-sensei will take a group of students on a performance tour across Japan, including our own Stuart Goodnick. Join us for a pre-tour performance of some of the pieces that these two performers and others will bring to Japan in June, a rare treat. A master shakuhachi artist, Masayuki Koga, is considered one of the finest players in the world in 1967, while he was a member of Ongaku Shudan in Tokyo. His performance and recording of the group received the highest prize of the arts festival by the Educational Ministry of Japan. In 2001, he was recognized and honored uh, with the award from the California Arts Council for his contribution, leadership, and sacrifice for the youth, the next generation of artists, and all citizens of the state of California. He studied the Kinko School Shakachi with his father, Kiichi Koga, and Tozan School with Master Kazan Sakai in Tokyo, where he received his master teacher degree with highest honors. Currently, he's artistic director of the ensemble Essence, and General Director of the Japanese Music Institute of America. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Music of the Priore, Gurdjieff de Hartmann, performed by Rosemary Knott on piano. This is the beginning of the piece called The Great Prayer. Enjoy. <laughs>